You're talking about how can I just basically keep this species in hospice and just at that edge so we don't lose them entirely, but I can continue to exploit them to the maximum profit available. That's the system that we have right now. And that is part of the problem with where we find ourselves with this biodiversity crisis. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast about the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Jennifer Skeen. And I'm Vivecca Morris. Until recently, the wildlife trade for many Americans seemed like something that was a disturbing but far-off concern. Every so often, Twitter would erupt in outrage over pictures of someone engaged in trophy hunting, or the occasional Florida man would have a run-in with an escaped pet python in the Everglades. But over the last few months, the wildlife trade has hit very, very close to home in one of the most disruptive possible ways. Many of the early COVID-19 cases were people who had direct exposure to a live animal market, where farmed and wild-caught exotic species were stacked in cages as they waited to be sold and slaughtered. This unnaturally close contact among species that would rarely or never meet in any circumstance other than through the wildlife trade creates ideal conditions for animal pathogens to jump species barriers. The wildlife trade has also come to dominate our living rooms as we sit in social isolation. The salacious Netflix documentary Tiger King, a shocking glimpse of the world of big cat breeding and roadside zoos, has dominated social media and sparked conversations about the dangers posed to animals, as species and as individuals, by the confluence of human power, ignorance, greed, and lack of regulation. Tiger King is just a snapshot of the myriad ways in which people are exploiting and endangering wildlife, both legally and illegally. It's estimated that the global wildlife trade now affects one in every five animal species, and will soon put over 8,000 animal species at risk of extinction, making it a primary driver of biodiversity loss. Today's wildlife trade is so intense that it has the power to endanger or extinguish a once abundant species over the course of just a few years. As the world rebuilds from the devastation of COVID 19, There's an urgency to reset our relationship with animals in ways that ensure a healthier future for animals and ourselves. It's that future that our guest, Zach Smith, is helping to create. Zach is a senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council. For years, he has worked to create new safeguards to protect some of the world's most iconic and at-risk species, including vaquitas, elephants, and freshwater otters from the wildlife trade, habitat loss, pollution, climate change, and other threats. Zach has built international coalitions to expand cross-border protections for some of the world's most at-risk animals and has been a leading advocate for domestic protections, working to end U.S. markets for products such as ivory, and fighting against the Trump administration's dangerous environmental rollbacks. From seas and rivers to forests and savannas, Zach has been a critical voice for ensuring a sustainable future for wildlife. Zach Smith, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Zach, the magnitude of the international wildlife trade is truly astounding. I think it's astounding to many people who are reading about it now in the news per COVID-19, and that we're talking about billions of live animals and animal products being traded and shipped around the world every year, hundreds of millions of live animals being imported into the U.S. And the trade is, is extremely complex. There's legal trade and there's illegal trade. There are differing regulations depending on where it's occurring. So to start, we were wondering, could you paint sort of a broad picture for us of 
what the global wildlife trade looks like. What are some of the key patterns that you see and key drivers, who's involved and so forth? Sure. And I wish there was an easy answer and that there was a clear snapshot from it. But I think if we step back and think about wildlife trade and just the the way in which we interact with nature and the very way in which human existence kind of came out of this relationship with nature and wildlife, that it's hard to, that it's the kind of thing that is so background that it's not in the same way as like tracking like gold and as a commodity or, you know, other types of items that flow around the world. When people go out and go fishing, even if it's for a very small commercial purpose, like maybe they catch some for themselves, but they also, you know, are in a community where they sell some of it. You know, it's really hard to get an idea of like that is wildlife trade that is captured. And so in any kind of assessment, so to do that kind of assessment is very difficult because like I said, it's background economic activity that is really hard. And so getting estimates um, about the scale and scope of it are difficult. That doesn't mean that people haven't tried, for example, the estimated value of, of legal, so, so legal wildlife trade in the EU is about $100 billion annually, um, which is an incredible amount. And when you look at a glimpse of the scale there are records of over 100 million tons of fish um, traded annually, uh, 1.5 million birds, 440,000 tons of medicinal plants in trade in just one year. And so when you start thinking about trying to capture that and how one would do it, it just really is difficult. I think that it's, I think it's just fair to say that it's, it's an incredibly large amount and that really is, it is almost like a background economic activity, especially when we think about outside of the United States and some developing countries in which our reliance upon the natural world, where we're still having a huge impact, don't get me wrong. But when we think about it, you know, we are increasingly less and less of a society that ourselves individually are going out and having that kind of impact versus other parts of the world where that is still very much, you know, part of a day-to-day life. And because of the complexities of this trade, you know, there's also a really complex regulatory system behind it, both at the international level and at the domestic level. Can you talk a little bit about some of the mechanisms that are in place to regulate and monitor this trade? Right. So the the international regulation of wildlife trade would fall into kind of two different areas. One is just an understanding of trade flows, and that is just the harmonized tariff schedule. And there's a lot of different types of wildlife that are on the harmonized tariff schedule. And so one can track trade sometimes in that way as far as its its international components. Um, But that doesn't give you any kind of assessment of whether or not it's sustainable. It's just the fact that it occurred. And the categories that they use are so broad that it's really difficult to try to, you know, on a species by species level, start to pull anything out from that. You can do that for some certain like seafood species, but it's much more difficult when it comes to other species. So we can try to capture flows of trade and predominantly, and I should have said this before, the flow of trade of of wildlife is from the global south to the global north. That is the direction of this trade, which has a lot of equity issues, has a lot of historical, you know, challenges and associations to how we are taking advantage of in the global north of and continuing to exploit the opportunities that are before us from the global south. So um, that, that's one of the complicating factors. 
But in addition to just our general understanding of the trade itself, to a certain extent, is monitored and regulated through you know these large international agreements like the WTO and like there are certain types of rules, so to speak. More specifically to wildlife trade, there's a convention that 183 parties, countries, are members of. Um, this is the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of Fauna and Flora. And it regulates trade in species that are th threatened or may be threatened with extinction, both because of trade and also where trade just may be a component to that. And so that's where we get things like the regulations of elephant ivory around the world, uh, rhino horn, and actually, you know, over 35,000 species that they regulate overall. Most of them are plants, actually, are regulated to ensure that the trade doesn't continue to drive species into extinction. And then, of course, every single country has their own regulatory regime. And then within every country, there's subunits that also have regulatory regimes. So in the United States, obviously, we have 50 subunits. And then we have states that can make their own, I mean, cities within states that can make their own rules when it comes to trade, as long as it doesn't legally conflict or isn't preempted by some larger federal rule. And then even in countries like China, where they might have a domestic ivory ban, which they do, which is good news, they can have exemptions for like antiques and the antique exemption can be applied differently based upon which city in China or region in China you're talking about. So it does lead to a lot of confusion. And there's always, especially in terms of enforcement, there's always value in more uniform you know, rules that make it easy for enforcement officers and just people to understand so that there isn't as much confusion. Who is enforcing CITES now? Each state, um, each country is supposed to have a management authority that is designated through their uh, own legislation. Here in the United States, the management authority is the Fish and Wildlife Service. And each country is also supposed to have a scientific authority and that is also contained within the Fish and Wildlife Service, although it doesn't have to be. And the scientific authority, they are the designated kind of body within a party that makes assessments around, you know, whether or not trade is detrimental or not to species. And then also the management authority is more of the, let's say the enforcement, that higher level, like are the rules being followed properly? One of the other international mechanisms at play is the IUCN Red List, which lists species as vulnerable, endangered, or, or critically endangered. Can you talk about the relationship between this list and that convention, CITES, and how responsive CITES has been to threats to species? For example, it's been shown that CITES lists species an average of 10.3 years after the IUCN assesses them as being threatened by international trade. What is the relationship between these bodies and, and why is CITES sometimes struggling to keep up? It's an interesting question and it and it's a little complicated, but I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. So the IUCN is independent from CITES. It's an independent international union for conservation of nature. And actually where I work in RDC, we're a member of the IUCN. So we attend the World Conservation Congress. We vote on motions and set out IUCN policy and positions. And the IUCN itself also has something called the Red List, which really the global community, especially in the world of wildlife trade, relies upon for information about the status of species. Because you can't answer any questions about whether or not trade is good or bad, or the volume is good or bad, unless you actually know what the status of the species is. And so the IUCN provides that through its Red List. 
Now they don't cover all species. That would be an impossible task, most likely, but they do focus on those species that are usually the most threatened and also the ones that we, if we know about them, it's because they're you know, often in trade or they, they were interacting with them. And so the species that they miss are probably ones that you know, we're obviously having incidental impacts on, but they're not the ones that people are, are moving around the world as much. And so the IUCN performs their assessment and their assessment isn't with an eye towards CITES. It's an independent assessment that can be used for a lot of different purposes um, within the scientific community. And so they will assess species as being vulnerable, uh, endangered, critically endangered, extinct, um, least concern. There's a lot of data, data deficient. So there's different ways in which they categorize species. And then CITES itself has its own categorization and their own rules about when a species should get certain types of protections. They don't necessarily align. There has historically been an attempt to align the different criteria, but because CITES is a convention in, in essence and a negotiation between countries, they came up with their own rules of what they wanted to do. And they actually built in more flexibility than the IUCN did. So they can list species as threatened with extinction maybe that the IUCN wouldn't have designated with the same threat level. But that's also because CITES might be looking at the trends in trade and the threat of trade down the road versus IUCN might be looking at things, you know, at as a static in time. That said, you're right, there is this gap between what the IUCN has traditionally identified in its red list as being threatened with extinction, where trade may be a factor to that threatened status. And part of that is because CITES, the way that it operates is that it operates based upon the way in which people bring or parties bring forward petitions for protection. So there isn't an automatic nature to it. And so what has just been happening is that the number of species that are threatened is largely overwhelming and they just don't get the attention of all of the parties involved. And it takes a lot of effort to put forward a case at CITES. Now, there are a lot of people who are talking about, like, can we make this more streamlined? Can we have it more, I wouldn't say automatic, but almost a process that compels that consideration of if you are listed on the IUCN red list, that you will definitely get that attention at the next conference of the parties at CITES. And so, like I said, it gets complicated, but you're absolutely right. There was a paper by um, Frank and Wilco that talked about the long delays in banning trade in threatened species. CITES has not been living up to its potential. And a lot of that's because it's also, in many instances, there are times in which there's a lot of influence by pro-use um, countries and pro-use voices within the convention. And even IUCN has a pro-use, sustainable use segment that has at times on species that CITES has ended up listing as threatened with extinction that IUCN has said, no, no, these don't qualify for that protection. So instead of being precautionary, instead of, of kind of putting the context of wildlife trade in the larger biodiversity crisis that we have, and the fact that there are a million species threatened with extinction, which should compel more protections, you have bodies like the IUCN even disagreeing with the specialist groups within IUCN who are doing these assessments, but then the IUCN group that's related to CITES will come in and say, well, yes, our specialist said that, but you know, looking at the CITES criteria, which are, which are slightly different, they will actually make recommendations or say, we don't believe this meets the criteria. So it's really unfortunate. 
that this delay exists. It's unfortunate that there are people within the IUCN who are not looking at these opportunities to expand protections. Um, and it's a problem that we are focused on and are looking to try to address in the years ahead. Could you speak, Zach, to how you're trying to address that? And I'm also curious at the same time whether there's any momentum or interest or whether it'd be at all feasible to switch from what's effectively, you know, blacklist approach now, whereby when an animal is proved to be, you know, critically endangered or under threat, they receive protections as opposed to a whitelist approach where they you know, automatically receive protections unless they could be, you know, proven to that the harvesting and the trade did not pose a threat to their at least species level survival. And is there any interest in making that shift from blacklist to whitelist? And what could that potentially look like if so? I think that there is deafening interest in making that shift. I think that the challenge, and this is where things get, you know, really frustrating and and these are the tools that the opposition will use to to try to block these kind of changes because they'll start pointing to the actual language of the convention itself, which fair enough, that's important to do. And the processes that are outlined now, we just don't have that process at the convention at CITES. The way it works is that it's a one species considered at a time. It's the underlying baseline is trade is fine in wildlife and that we should only intervene where there's a problem versus trade itself represents a threat to species, which is actually accurate. And what the UN has said in their reports that trade is a driver of the destruction of biodiversity and our ecosystems. So instead of assuming that that baseline is good, we should assume that baseline is bad. And like you said, that it should be, you have to make an affirmative showing that the trade you're engaging in is not detrimental to the survivor of the species or to the contributions those species make to the ecosystem overall at the levels that they currently exist. I think that that's really important for us to remember too. People, I think it, unfortunately have gotten caught up over the years about sustainability and this idea of when we really ask about what is sustainability, it's really you can push a species right to the edge of decline. And as long as you just harvest, you know, right to that edge, you can continue doing indefinitely. But the problem with that is that you're not talking about maximizing their role in the ecosystem. You're not talking about an optimum sustainable population that is thriving and robust. You're talking about how can I just basically keep this species in hospice and just at that edge so we don't lose them entirely, but I can continue to exploit them to the maximum profit available. That's the system that we have right now. And that is part of the problem with where we find ourselves with this biodiversity crisis. So when you ask about the efforts, though, specifically, it gets a little complicated because CITES is a parties-led and should be a parties-led treaty. So we have to identify parties that are interested in you know, being ambitious and maybe like a high ambition coalition that exists in other frameworks, such as the UNFCCC and the United Nations work around climate change and and some of the United Nations work around the Convention on Biological Diversity, where you have high ambition coalition of parties. CITES needs a high ambition coalition of parties who are going to start to make these cases. And I hope they do so. And we would be ready there to support them. But at the same time, we don't want to be in a place where wealthy, privileged Western NGO you know, comes in and tells developing countries, you know, what they should be doing. I think that there's a role for us to play to be supportive, to provide tools, to create frameworks in which those conversations can take place, but not 
come in and tell other countries, you know, it's our way or the highway. I'd love to hear, Zach, a little bit more about some of the specific species that you've been working to protect. There are so many iconic species that people around the world know and love that you and your team have really been instrumental in leveraging these international mechanisms to stop these impacts. For example, the vaquita is one of the campaigns that you've fought the longest and the hardest on. The vaquita, of course, is, is a porpoise that's native to the Gulf of California. It's severely endangered, largely as a result of fishing practices. Only about 10 of them are remaining in the wild. And what's interesting about the vaquita is this is an example of an animal that's not the direct object of exploitation, but it's a victim of practices targeting other species. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly has driven the vaquita to this really precarious position and, and the work that you've done to protect it? Yeah, the vaquita is a really, um, it's a really tragic story, um, in part because of it's one of these species that just has a niche within its evolution where they, they found themselves pretty much like stuck in one area that could only support a particular population. Like the vaquita population was probably never large. As you noted, they're in the Gulf of California. They're at the very northern part of it. And that is a very, very long, thin area of ocean and, and sea that does not lend itself to migration or moving or mixing with other, uh, you know, to, to, to expand the range of that population. And the thought is, is that the vaquita diverged from its closest relative, which is the, I think it's the Brewmeister porpoise. Um, don't make me spell that. Um, and that was like a million years ago. And their closest relative, where, they're where their closest relative is located is around Argentina and Chile in the southern tip of, of South America. So you have this, you know, at some point, obviously, these species diverged from each other. And we have the unique vaquita species that developed. This is the smallest porpoise smallest cetacean in the world um, and one of only seven porpoise species. And yeah, as you noted, there's probably around 10 today. They are threatened exclusively from being bycaught and, and drowning in gill nets that are placed in the water to largely uh, capture totuaba, which is an illegal itself endangered species of fish and also shrimp traditionally over the years in that area of the Gulf. And so it's a tragic story of a species that um, is very unique. As I noted, there were probably never a very large population. They're isolated in a very small part of the world that just happens to overlap with a species um, and with some fishing practices that are really, I mean, gillnets are just a disaster for so many species and they're a disaster for vaquita. And so over the course of the last around 20 years, their population has declined by over 95%. And now, you know, we have those 10 remaining and their habitat continues to shrink. And the Mexican government, and the Quito habitat lies exclusively within Mexico. And it's actually a very small area. I think it's around the size of Los Angeles County, um, where the vaquita habitat is. They've been completely ineffectual at stopping the illegal use of gill nets within the vaquita's uh, range. And the interesting like wildlife trade element here is because, of course, vaquita themselves are not in trade. But the totuaba and shrimp that are caught using gill nets are in trade. The shrimp, up until recently, legally, so for a very long time, the legal shrimp industry in the northern Gulf of California 
would go out and you know capture shrimp and export to largely to the United States. And then totoaba is a fish that has a swim bladder that is used in fish moss soup in certain parts of China. And the tragic thing here is China had their own. It's a croaker fish that has these kind of swim bladders. China had its own swim bladder fish called the bahaba, which of course they nearly wiped out to extinction. And so it's like, what's the next best thing? And the next best thing was, well, let's look at the totoaba. They also have a very large swim bladder. And so you see this ripple effect of, let's cause the extinction of one species of fish, then let's look for the substitute. The substitute is the totoaba, which itself is already threatened with extinction. And then in fishing for the totoaba entirely illegally and trafficking it to China. And it's not just the, and it's not the whole fish. You will find dead carcasses of totoaba littering the desert beaches of this beautiful landscape where the, the flesh and, and the, the bodies have been left to rot and they've just cut out the swim bladder for drying and smuggling to China. And because of this demand, the vaquita is on the edge of extinction. So that it's really important to think about these connections between the behaviors that we have and the ripple effects that they have to other species. Wow, that's incredibly tragic. What what exactly is NRDC prioritizing now with the vaquita so endangered? You know, I, I know there are some parties to CITES that have actually taken some positive actions on vaquita protection, but it's not universal, and that's left gaps in in their protection. So, what is NRDC doing to? try and salvage the last members of this species. Our work on this, on the vaquitas, started over five years ago. And initially what our work was is kind of a, a multi-pronged approach. You know, how can we put pressure on the Mexican government itself and the industry itself to self-regulate um, um, to reduce the use of, of gillnets in vaquita habitat? and to reduce that bycatch. So that was like a Mexican-based focus. And our understanding, and if you look at the history of Mexico when it comes to other species, be it sea turtles or, or dolphins and tuna, the way in which, because they've been talking about this and making promises for a long time, the way in which we identified the, that was going to capture the attention of the Mexican government was to really have some credible economic threats to the shrimping industry. Because obviously we can't make threats around Totuaba because it's already an illegal fishery. But we can make threats around the legal shrimp fishery, which we did. NRDC and other partner organizations called for a boycott of Mexican shrimp. Actually, Trader Joe's, while they won't really admit that it was because of us, you know, they indicated in a response to us that they were no longer going to source shrimp from that part of Mexico. So, you know, we, we consider that that a win. And other, other importers and um, did the same thing. And then also we we still there's still limitations in that. That's a very uh, difficult campaign to try to convince people and wholesalers not to buy shrimp from that part of Mexico. And so uh, an easier tool is to get the United States government to ban the import of shrimp and to put that economic pressure and say we will only lift the ban when you are doing what is necessary to protect vaquita under U.S. law. Well, unfortunately, there is a U.S. law that actually demands that. It's the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and it demands it of all fish imports. All fish imports in the United States are supposed to meet U.S. standards for marine mammal protection. So we went to court, <clears throat> and we sued uh, the Trump administration over its failure to ban imports from this part of Mexico, which clearly 
were not meeting US standards for marine mammal um, bycatch. And the court ordered a ban of imports. And we really did get the attention of the Mexican government. And they were working in a direction, at least, you know, that was going to put more of, of um, these pressures in place. But then there was an election in Mexico. And so you have a new administration that comes in. And some would say a better administration from certain perspectives, but an administration that nonetheless that needs to be brought up to speed on the issues. And any time in which there's a discussion of bringing up to speed or letting more people wrap their mind around this or sitting down and having more conversation is a luxury we don't have when it comes to vaquita. Intensive vaquita conservation efforts came too late. And I think that that's something the environmental community and me, when I think about how to move forward with advocacy going forward, that we can't be waiting until species get into this plight or you know or in this situation because it, it's just not going to work because you never have the time that you want and as you noted that there are internationally there are other people who are part of the answer to this the united states itself trafficking flows through the united states in many instances and then of course china is the final destination for the totuaba and so we got we put a lot of pressure within the CITES context to get a decision that required countries to do more reporting and make more effort. And it was after that decision came through that the Chinese government, you know, looked at their obligations under the treaty and the decisions that were made and said, great, we'll do more enforcement. And so NRDC helped and some with some partner organizations and we helped the Chinese government do more enforcement within China. And we, there was actually success there. But the problem now is, is when you get to a number of species that are so low in number, it doesn't matter what the market and this idea of changing behavior in China will do. Because by the time that those market behavior changes flow through and get themselves to Mexico, it'll be too late. So I'm not focused anymore on getting China to change its behavior because anything China does is not going to save the last 10 remaining vaquita. It's only Mexico on the ground. But this is, of course, not a position where you'd want to be. You'd want to be in a position where you could, like with elephants, change behavior, change the consumption patterns in countries like China. And, and I really want to say it's not just China. I mean, the whole world has this problem. The United States is, is, after China, the largest consumer of wildlife in the world. So I don't want this to seem like that this is a China problem. It is not. But in the case of Totoaba and ivory, it is a, a China problem in many respects. And China's done the right thing. And in closing its domestic ivory market, you can see that long-term ripple effect to where that is having benefits on the ground you know, to elephants in Africa. But that's because we have the luxury, if we want to call it that, of populations of elephants in Africa that can wait for that kind of ripple to happen. That's just not the case with Vaquita. So while we did try to do something in China and it did work and it was helpful because Mexico never used that opportunity to crack down on illegal fishing. And a lot of this is around livelihoods and we could talk about that too and this idea of a just transition and adequately investing in local populations so that they have other options. Mexico never did that. They never took it seriously and in fact, I think that Mexico always had a plan that was like, the quicker the vaquita goes extinct, the quicker we can return to business as usual. Will you speak, Zach, to those just transitions? The New York Times and other publications have recently been reporting, for instance, about how under COVID-19, due to the national lockdowns and border closures, Africa and other areas have seen really dramatic drops 
in the tune of tens of billions of dollars in their tourism industries, much of which is a key motivator for, at least financially, for protecting many of these wild species like giraffes and elephants that you and your team at NRDC work so hard to protect. What should you do in a situation like that? And how can the U.S. government and U.S. advocates help advance the just transition? I think everyone is still wrapping their heads around how do we do that in the context of COVID-19 and a global pandemic and and what a just transition looks like within that context. I think that my thoughts around a just transition when it comes to wildlife trade outside of that really goes to pressuring governments and having an answer to this question. I think that the environmental community for a long time has been very good at saying no, but at the same time has not been very good at saying what the alternative is. And I don't, I also kind of reject the idea that it's the environmental community's job to fix all of those problems. And and I think that's the trap that we have often fallen into around livelihoods and around enforcement efforts within countries is this, this idea that when we point out, you know, just the facts and the scientific facts for the most part, that giraffes cannot sustain, you know, this onslaught to their habitat, for example, and trade, which is increasingly a problem for giraffes, although the loss of habitat is the largest um, problem. And just pointing that out and saying that has to stop, I think you know that's a good role for environmentalists. The problem is, is that when people go, okay, well then what should we do? And it really transfers this burden of government and this burden of planning and burden of enforcement back to environmentalists not just environmentalists, but people who are interested in conservation, which in in many instances is an unfair way. It's not my job to tell a government like Mexico about how exactly it should stop gillnets from being in the water. That's Mexico's job. And I shouldn't feel that the burden is on me to do that. However, to circle back to your question, I think it is important for us to provide a framework for how we think these things should be done. So when I talk about like a just transition in the case of the vaquita and the communities there, I don't think that it's on us to drill down to an idea of, oh, well, you should use this kind of gear instead of this kind of gear. Or actually tourism would be great for you. Why don't you do tourism? But what kind of tourism and what would that look like? And you know what? You really need to have a solar plant there that will produce energy and that can be a place for jobs. I mean, I just really bristle at, at that kind of, which I, you weren't suggesting at all, but just in general, I think that we, we fall into a trap versus just making the demands. But part of our demand has to be just transition because, especially when you're talking about legal trade, there are people involved in the, in the legal trade of shrimp for years within you know the flow of shrimp from from Mexico to the United States and that was big business and it made a lot of money and yet somehow the people who suffer from new restrictions are of course the local communities who rely on a day-to-day basis of being able to go out and fish and use particular types of gear and if they're not allowed to do that anymore someone needs to pay for that so that's one thing is just who pays for a just transition and why should that be born? I mean, the, part, the first part of the justice part is it not being born by those communities themselves. And then the second part of it, I think, is an idea of, of not having false promises or, or just unrealistic ideas of what that transition should be. And I think that that's the place where conservation-minded people can say, 
what a just transition is not looking at a spreadsheet of jobs and saying, well, you're guess what? Our economy is losing a thousand fishing jobs in this community, but our economy in Mexico is gaining 5,000 jobs in solar plants. Well, that very well may be true, but that's not the way humans work. We don't work in these ledger systems. We're not easily fungible. I mean, governments might look at us that way, but people aren't easily fungible. A just transition is not, you need to leave your community where you've lived, where your grandparents are, where your, where your family is, where you have the roots, and find a job elsewhere. There's no justice in that. Or a just transition is not, you're going to be able to stay in your community, but you're going to be making a third of what you were making before. So when I talk about just transition is that it is incumbent upon governments who do have these resources to provide conditions and make guarantees through job guarantee programs, through direct transfer of funds, to um, investments in communities that are community driven of what those communities want and the direction that they want to go, but opening up the spigots of funds to go to those communities and saying, you know, look, we as a, as a society, as a globe, you know, whatever that segment is, but we as a country value the existence of the Vaquita. And our value of that is that we're going to ask you to stop doing X and Y, and we're going to crack down through enforcement and whatnot on people who are conducted in illegal fishing activities. But in return for that, we're going to invest in your community, and we're going to find a way in which this community can thrive moving forward. And it's not for me to kind of figure out what that is, other than just a recognition and understanding that that has to be part of the answer that we have going forward. That's really interesting, Zach, and very thoughtful, and will surely be extremely pertinent in the weeks and months ahead, given that we've seen now um, in recent days a letter coming from Cory Booker and Lindsey Graham and the other senators who signed on to it, to the World Health Organization um, and to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN calling for a global ban on the wildlife trade and especially live animal markets like the one from which COVID-19 is speculated to potentially have originated. As someone with your expertise and deep deep knowledge in this, in this field of wildlife trade, are you hopeful about this moment for wildlife following the pandemic when everyone is paying attention to it at a scale that perhaps they weren't prior? And when you see a letter like the one that came recently calling for a ban on the wildlife trade globally, what do you hope that that will look like? I am hopeful, and I have to say that you know, talking about when we were talking about before about like CITES and getting CITES to just match up with what, you know, the IUCN, you know, designations of species that are threatened with extinction, the, the kind of things that the Booker letter calls for go much further. And, you know, the window has been shifted. We have an opportunity to push harder. And it's an opportunity that that is ripe given the biodiversity crisis that we're in. And this idea of flipping things on their head instead of, you know, a baseline of wildlife trade is fine let's just focus on the problem areas versus like wildlife trade itself represents a problem. Let's focus on those areas in which we, we can allow it because it is either safe health-wise and also, you know, that we can harvest certain species um, from certain species and they can, but they can continue to be robust and vibrant and thriving within their ecosystem and we can and, and still support some, some use um, and, you know, there are a lot of perfect examples of that. There's a lot of very well-run fisheries, for example, um, in different parts of the world. 
So the, the one thing about the, the Booker letter is very interesting. It's, you know, the trade in live wildlife in markets. I think there that it really does provide us an opportunity. First of all, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And then the next, the next step is, well, why would we limit it to live, the trade in live animals? If our concern is really based on this idea of pandemics and, and the jump of viruses, which of course, you know, is what this is about, for this particular instance, because anytime you're trading wildlife, say it's dead and that you've processed it, you've skinned it, it's just the, the jaguar bone that you're turning into some kind of, you know, uh, token or for, you know, some, you know, some tiger bone wine that uh, jokes on you. It's not really tiger, it's jaguar, but um, <laughs> that's still a problem for jaguars. So someone is coming into contact with that species when that species was alive. And so that's why I'm excited about that letter, because I think that we can work, if people have that sentiment about live animals, I think that with just a little bit of, of discussion, that we can bring that around to, it's just wildlife trade in general. And most wildlife trade should be banned. Um, we should start from a position of working that most wildlife trade just shouldn't exist. The biodiversity crisis that we have right now and the million species that are threatened with extinction, that is driven mostly by two things. And guess what? It's not climate change. Climate change is the third largest driver, but it's not the top two. And the top two are land use changes. So that's converting wild areas into new uses, usually agriculture. And it's often agriculture that we do not need. And then the second is the direct exploitation of species. And CITES would say, for example, we're doing a good job. Very few CITES listed species have ever gone extinct. True enough, great. And yet the science tells us that wildlife trade itself is the second driver of an extinction threat to a million species and to the collapse of the ecosystems that we rely upon for clean air, clean water, and the very bedrock foundations of, of human existence as we know it. And so I don't understand how you could possibly call that success. And so we do need to ban wildlife trade just to remove that threat overall to the existence of biodiversity that we currently have. I'm really encouraged by that letter, and I'm hoping that we can use it to really push further within the United States and have the United States become a leader on this internationally. What is some of the work that you are doing domestically to ensure that the United States can become a leader on you know, ending our, our exploitation of wildlife? As you've already alluded to, you know, this isn't just some faraway problem um, of hunting animals in remote places. The drivers and impacts of the trade in wildlife are extremely close to home. And as you've already said, the United States is one of the largest consumers of illegal wildlife and wildlife products worldwide. So what are the ways in which the U.S. is currently driving this trade and exploitation of wildlife? And what are the ways that NRDC is working to leverage U.S. markets and, and U.S. leadership to change the global paradigm? Well, one of the things that we'll be doing is certainly be working with legislators who are interested in following up with legislation that kind of coincides with the, the ideas around banning um, large you know, types or segments of wildlife that are contained in the Booker letter. And so I think that there's an opportunity for us to push to, you know, domestically in a legislative process, and we will be doing that. Obviously, there are 
the right time and right place and all of that, but we'll have to look at it. We've also done that on a state level, and, and we can have a lot of influence internationally by identifying some of the states that are some of the biggest drivers within the United States of wildlife trade and consumption. And New York, for example, we helped um, and supported the passage of a law there that authorizes the government of the state of New York to list vast numbers of species that are threatened with extinction as just not being allowed for trade in New York. And we should replicate that and do it in other states. And we will be working to move that forward. We're also looking for ways to pressure the U.S. to be more aggressive internationally, both within the CITES context, which we're quite familiar with, but also looking at how can we leverage trade deals going forward, especially if the United States takes certain positions itself on the wildlife trade, how can it ask for those provisions to be built into what other countries are doing? One example of that is the United States produces written detriment, not they call them non-detriment findings, basically they do an assessment of is this trade in this wild animal, is it not leading to the animal, to, to the species extinction? Is it non-detrimental, um, this particular trade? We produce a written report of that when we engage in trade in the United States for things that we export. So like U.S. species that we export to other parts of the world, we make that non-detriment finding and we do it in writing. And any one of us can ask the Fish and Wildlife Service for a copy of it. Other countries don't write them down. And so we're accepting huge amounts of imports into the United States of wild species that allegedly have a non-detriment finding, but really that's just them ticking a box saying, yes, this is non-detrimental, but there's no written documents backing it up. I mean, this is low-hanging fruit. They clearly in the United States should be required that if you're importing products that they should have, you know, this kind of non-detriment finding. The interesting thing is like, I used to think that that was the avenue, you know, even like a few years ago of like, okay, well, that's one way we can try to tackle this issue. Now I'm thinking bigger given the situation that we find ourselves in and given the support for things like the Booker letter is just, well, we can maybe skip over that, just go straight to banning, you know, most wildlife trade. Indirectly, to support wildlife and also to think about how trade itself threatens wildlife. So it's not just the trade in wildlife, but it's other types of trade. And I'm sure that people on this, you know, listening are familiar with like what's going on with the Amazon forest and things like Canada chopping down, you know, much of its boreal forest. Well, obviously this has implications for wildlife and that's related to trade. And so what can we do to put more pressure domestically to say, listen, we're happy to trade with you. You know, we need trade. You know, we can, we can do that. Let's trade. But if you're going to sell your products into a particular area, be it California or New York or into the United States, we have to have some kind of guarantees that this trade is not destroying the planet. So I'm interested in looking at those kind of initiatives as well going forward. Some of the examples that you've talked about also highlight how there's a big issue with regards to animal welfare beyond even just animals in the wild or species level impacts, but the individual level. And you, you recently wrote a blog post for NRDC about the hit Netflix series, Tiger King, which I think really highlights this. And, and you see this in the Gilnet example with the vaquita as well, where the trade you know, isn't just bad for the species overall or for their population numbers, but can be really horrific at the individual level. You know, For a dolphin getting caught in a gillnet you know, to be called bycatch might not sound that bad, but to see that what that looks like up close 
is really, really disturbing. It's a terrible way to go. And then likewise, to see tigers kept in backyards in the United States, as you see in, in Tiger King, is uh, incredibly inhumane as well. And so I'm wondering, when you, when you see a series like Tiger King, given your expertise in these areas, what do you see and what do you hope viewers will see and take away from that? I kind of can segment myself into a conservation challenge and then there's a welfare challenge. Um, at NRDC, we're not a welfare organization. And so kind of my approach to species in that context is what is it that we need to do for conservation? Now, conservation-wise, the welfare issues can, can come into play. When you see the treatment and the relationship that people have with tigers, for example, in the United States, and this idea of how we can use the natural world for our own purposes and for our own enjoyment. I don't think that anyone who wants to have that experience of petting a tiger is thinking about what that means for tigers in the wild. But what it is sending a message of is that wildlife is something for us to exploit and to use. It puts the United States in a very difficult position to say, well, it's okay for me to pet an animal, but you can't use the animal for a different purpose. And what we're all talking about is still the use of animals for our own exploitive purposes. At this particular moment in time, I think we can all use a little hope. You, you've written consistently echoing international scientists about the need for transformative change, both in the context of the wildlife trade and in the loss of our wild places like intact forests in the Canadian boreal and in the Amazon. What does transformative change look like to you? And, and how should we be rethinking our relationship with nature and the way we engage with the natural world and the way that we value and, and view the world around us? That's a, very big, that's a very big question of what that looks like. And I have at different times talked about when we get to the other side, what that looks like. One can envision a world in which we have prioritized nature and the, the very existence of the natural world and the functionings of the natural world in a way that really does put that first. We currently have decision-making processes, for example, within the United States, they're like, oh, if we're gonna do A, B, or C, we need to look at what the impact will be on nature. But those are forces that drive eyes wide open, which often remain shut. But nonetheless, you know, the idea behind these efforts are, let's have our eyes wide open as to the impacts we're having on the natural world and on the environment, but they're never forcing, they're not compelling. There isn't anything that says, if you're gonna conduct activity A, B, and C, that the natural world has to be left in the same place or better than when you left it as far as like the ecosystem services that it provides and the, you know, the thriving ability of biodiversity to be able to thrive within that ecosystem. So for me, that would be, you know, that it would be do no harm, you know, but it's more that do no harm. Like we let's start there. Like that should be where we get, how we get there is a very difficult question. How we turn business as usual uh, on its head and actually throw out business as usual. And I think that it's important to talk about the, the environmental movement within that context, where we are today with a million species threatened with extinction, 500,000 of which I should add, are dead species walking. The scientists say that these 500,000 of the species that are threatened with extinction do not have habitat right now that will provide them long-term survival. So even if we froze everything now, those species would be lost. So to save those 500,000 species, it's not enough just to say, let's stop all of our bad practices. 
we actually have to restore habitat for those species. And that's a very different, but it, but it just underlies the level of how business as usual needs to change. And this idea of business as usual, I think, doesn't let the environmental community and conservationists off the hook. You know, the environmental movement has been around for 40, 50 years, even longer, of course. But, you know, the modern environmental movement that started in the, in the 60s and 70s. And yet here we are. So what, what have we done wrong? So we need to do those kind of assessments as well, and not in a blame way, but learning from those mistakes. And I think that one of the way we learn from those mistakes is to really just admit the fact that when you start introducing profit-driven decision-making into how we deal with nature, you're going to run into problems because profits will, even if you put in place so-called mechanisms to try to control for those influences, they're just so great that we really have to remove that from the equation. To close, Zach, we like to ask each guest to recommend several works, be it books or films or organizations that have had a significant impact on how you approach your work. Do several come to mind for you? One that really inspired me in a very weird way was The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. It's very interesting to think about the natural world as something that will go on and that extinctions have happened before and they've happened a lot. Like corals have gone extinct five or six times before on the planet and they've come back because there was, you know, because in one part of the world, there still was, you know, some very small, you know, coral that then made its way and expanded across the entire ocean again. And so, and that's happened repeatedly and repeatedly. A book like that, that is super scary also leaves me with an understanding of hope and an idea of the capacity of nature to rebound, maybe not in the timeframes that are sufficient for you know, the current generations, but we can start to see that. If, if we take our hands off, um, I think we would, no one would be surprised at how quickly and fast nature would do its work of moving forward. So I really thought that that book Instead of actually being depressing, it actually kind of inspired me. Zach Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. I really um, enjoyed it very much. It's been a pleasure, and I'm just excited that you're amplifying these issues. Thank you so much. Thank you also to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School and the Yale Human Nature Lab. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Zach Smith and his work. Thank you for listening.